He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. And Galatians 5, 22 to 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I'd like to invite Harry up to speak to us this morning. Well, good morning. We do live in interesting times. This has been quite a a fortnight, hasn't it, in terms of the nation and in a certain sense, everything's changed, but nothing's changed. You know, life still goes on, and we still do our work, and I have our families, and, but there's been a sea change in terms of the nation with this referendum, and certainly uh, challenges to that. And I just want to uh, kind of introduce, I suppose, the topic of character by just, um, just speaking maybe a perspective, really, when we face stormy times. And uh, I, I look to Paul, really, who is writing from jail in Philippi, and the Apostle Paul gave this perspective. Imagine him in jail and dire circumstances, and he said this. He said, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as believers, uh, Paul was saying that the Philippian believers were no longer just citizens of Philippi, that they they were not just reflecting Roman culture, but actually they were also part of another city and another culture, one that has eternal significance. And I want to say that to us today, that actually we are dual citizens. Some of us are, are triple citizens of many nations, but at, at the very least we are dual citizens. We're citizens of this, this nation, but we're also citizens of heaven. And... Uh, Paul encouraged them to walk worthy of their citizenship. They lived in Philippi, but as Christians, their identity was elsewhere. And for us, our identity and our security come from God, not just from our national identity, whatever that may be. And in in this congregation, I I reckon there's probably nearly 10 nations represented here in this room. I won't ask you to to name them, but it's just a rough estimate. And, and, And our citizenship is not just here on earth, but it's in heaven. So that's, uh, that's why it's said that we're in the world, but not of the world. And that's, that's a bit of a tension at times, how we live that out and how we, how we walk that, that narrow, narrow line between the two, being in the world, but not of the world. Some of the noblest and most, uh, most joyful believers I know uh, and I saw were when we were in Uganda, uh, when we lived there for about a year, a, a nation whose politics is extremely corrupt and for whom daily life is, is a struggle and sometimes even brutal, just day-to-day survival. And yet, for many Ugandan believers, I saw their joy and security was in Christ alone. And that was a real example for me, particularly coming from an affluent uh, Western nation, to, to see people who actually had very little, and yet their security was in Christ. Our security is not in our national identity. We are in storms not of our choosing, but the storms can become the setting where our Christian faith becomes, becomes evident. And I just want to read, a, 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 just tell a story, really, about, uh, about a, um, 
a, 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 um, a revival that happened in the 19th century, and it came through a man named Jeremiah Lamphere, who is a, a businessman who lived in New York City, and the times in which he lived uh, was, uh, were times of great affluence within America, the mid-19th century, where, where people were intent upon getting and, and uh, spending as much as they could, and they had lost interest in religion. It was a time of great expansion when railroads were being built and gold was discovered in California, and everything was good for the nation. But he had this idea uh, about gathering businessmen in New York City together to pray uh, for a short time of, of prayer, once a week, just one hour. And that, that, that was what he, he determined uh, in these times when religion was, was waning. And he just saw the need and, and felt responded to, to God in that way. So, so on the, uh, at 12 noon on the September 23rd in 1857, uh, he, 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 he gathered uh, in a room in a, in a small church in New York City. And he had put a placard outside the church which read this. It said, prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop five, ten, or twenty minutes, or the whole hour, as your time admits. And it looked like no one had the time, because nobody came. He was there alone, and it got to be 12.30, and gradually a few people came. And by, by the time the prayer meeting ended, there had been six people there praying. And uh, just pouring their hearts out to God. There wasn't any special great anointing. There wasn't any great happening that happened with those six people. But they just, they just faithfully gathered to prayer to pray, and, and prayed every week. Uh, and this was a time when fortunes were ballooning and faith was diminishing. So there was, there was a, a spiritual climate. And then what happened, just a few months later, the nation was staggered by the worst financial panic in its history. Banks closed, people were out of work, families were hungry, there was, there was an economic collapse. There was a calamity in the nation. Uh, a bit like 1929, the Great Depression. And it's interesting what, out of what came out of that, those hard times. They began to pray every week, and every week more and more people would gather. And then, uh, and then by, they, they felt to do it every day, and they would just pray for that one hour in New York City and gather people together, businessmen, tradespeople, people of all station of life would gather together to pray. And within a short time, this prayer meeting had taken over the whole building and crowds of 3,000 people were gathering to pray for one hour every day of the week. Can you imagine that? Coming out of stormy times. And, then, uh, and some of the testimonies were amazing. I'll read you one testimony here. It says, one time a, a man wandered into the Fulton Street prayer meeting who intended to murder a woman and then commit suicide. He listened as someone was delivering a fervent exhortation and urging the duty of repentance. Suddenly, the would-be murderer startled everyone by crying out, Oh, what shall I do to be saved? What a great statement. What shall I do to be saved? Just then, another man arose and with tears streaming down his cheeks, asked the meeting to sing the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. At the conclusion of the service, both men were converted. And this prayer meeting went on for, for about two or three years, and they reckoned that in that time, there were over one million converts 
It was revival. It spread within New York City. It spread to other, other cities, other states within America. And it, it, was, it was a revival that was spread by means of, of people whose lives had been changed. It wasn't spread by vicars and ministers and evangelists. It was ordinary people, as this Jeremiah Lenfear had been just an ordinary businessman who felt called of God to, 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 to start to pray and gathered six people together, and those six people turned into many, many thousands. And it's interesting what he said. Uh, his dedication to the work came only after a struggle and total surrender to God. And so often that happens, that things are birthed out of struggle. Things are birthed out of hard times, difficult times. And this, is, this was his testimony. This is what he wrote years later. He said, The subject was laid upon my heart and was a matter of constant consideration for some time. At last I resolved to give myself to the work, and I shall never forget with what force at the time those words came home to my soul. Tis done, the great transaction's done. I am my Lord's, and he is mine. He drew me, and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. You know, a man stirred by God in, 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 in his day and his time, he, he, he understood his times, and he knew what he should do, and that was simply to pray. And out of that, many, many people were converted, and a great revival happened. So I just say that because, again, to say that, that, that the, 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 our current news in our nation makes, makes uh, life look very stormy. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. People don't know what the future holds. We don't know what our jobs will be, whether we'll have jobs. We don't know what the economy will do. And, and, and there's, a, there's a shift in the kind of political axis. But let's not panic because our citizenship is in heaven. Let us seek the heavenly perspective and keep talking to God and letting God speak to us because our hope comes from God. Amen? Can you say amen to that? That's just a little preamble, just to put things in perspective so that we understand that these are also times of great opportunity. These are not dire times and we, we, we you know, the, the sky is falling and, and woe is me, but these are times of opportunity to give a reason for the hope that lies within us through difficult times, challenging times. Part of the consequence of the times we live is there's a huge leadership vacuum, isn't there? Labor Party, the Tories, even the England football team. You know, I'm thinking of applying for the job. You know, it's good pay and, you know, challenging. But there's definitely a, a, a leadership uh, vacuum. And, and with, with leadership being so hotly contested, we, we ask ourselves the question, where are the good leaders? And then you look to America, the election there, and you go, oh, where are the good leaders? There's one, you know, Hillary Clinton is, is, is allegedly corrupt, and then you have the other guy, and need I say more? If you're talking about character and the kinds of leaders that we would want to, to, to lead a nation and be leaders in, in the world today. There's, there's a dire need for leadership, good leadership, men, men and women of good character you know, who, who, are, who have integrity. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's good to ask, well, what kind of leaders would we like? And certainly good character is a quality that we would want to see in a leader. So look at the Bible as an example of a good leader. We turn to Psalm 78, what, uh, what we read there earlier about David. And, and uh, David's life is a fascinating study of, of leadership because, you see, from a young boy, he was called by God 
Remember Samuel the prophet said, said God looks at, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And God saw something in the heart of that shepherd boy. Saw something that, that, he could, that, that, that would represent the interests of God. That would represent the character of God to the nation. So David was called out of, out of being a shepherd. And it says, then, then it kind of translates his, his shepherding of sheep into shepherding of people. It says, and David shepherded the people Israel with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. He led them. And David was such an example of a good leader, and yet, you know, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart, and yet he was a flawed man as well. He was an adulterer, he, he, uh, he, he, gave, uh, he, he authorized murder, he stole another man's wife, he was a flawed character, and yet at the same time he was a man after God's own heart. That gives me encouragement to say that God doesn't require perfection from us, but there's a grace upon our lives that warts and all, with our flaws, that God still sees us as his children, still sees us as his sons and daughters, and still wants to use us in the world. So, uh, so David was like that. Uh, but this, this idea that he, he shepherded Israel with integrity of heart and with skillful hands, this, this combination of character and competence, that David, David married the two, the, and good leadership combines both qualities in balance. Good character, but also you want skill. You want good competence as well. Because character without competence can lead to frustration. You have somebody with great character and, and just is, is, is a, <laughs> a, dare I say, a decent person, um, but could, could lack the skills, actually, to, of leadership and the skills of, of decision-making and, and, and the, the hard graft of leadership. Or you could have someone who's greatly competent but lacks character. And that, that makes a person unreliable and, and, and difficult to trust. You can't trust somebody if you can't trust their character. They could be, have all the skills in the world, but without the character, then, then it's unreliable. So, so the two need to be in balance together. So what is character? Well, just a brief definition here. I'll say character is a moral quality associated with qualities of honesty, courage, and integrity. And, uh, and one of my favorite quotes is, is the one by Martin Luther King, that famous March on Washington, where over a million people gathered. And uh, Martin Luther King gave one of the great speeches, the I Have a Dream speech. And he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, by the content of their character. That is the important thing. The outward things, you know, uh, what we appear to be have nothing compared to what, what's on the inside. What is the content of our character? Because that stands us in good stead in every relationship we have, whether it be within families, whether it be with our mates, whether it be in the workplace. Good character cannot be taken away from you. You can change your appearance, change the color of your hair, you can have hair or have no hair, whatever, but your character is, is who you are, and, and that's, that's, that, stay, that abides with you. Uh, on a lighter note, P.G. Woodhouse said this. He said, to find a man's true character, play golf with him. <laughs> 
And it's true. Those of us who are golfers know that to be true. That it's such a frustrating game and you are in such turmoil within and you want to say all kinds of things, but the, the, the protocol of golf is that you're very gentlemanly and polite. You keep it all within. Oh, I say, chaps, good, good. That was a bad shot, but you know, <laughs> you want to take your clubs and throw them into the lake or something. But that is a, a judge of a man's character. Maybe that's why people play golf, is that it, uh, it, 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 it builds your character. And obviously in the Bible, there are many examples of people with men and women with good character and men and women with bad character and men and women with a mix of, mix of the two. Good, good character and bad character. So, so the Bible is quite, uh, you know, is a good, good book to read if we want to, to really study what, what character is and, and the, the men and women of the Bible. Look at their lives in detail and say, well, what are the good things that you want to pick up from that and what are the things that you'd want to avoid with that? So Joseph would be held up as a, as, a, as, a good, as a man of good character, a man of good integrity. And yet his brothers would be just the opposite. You know, they conspired to kill him and they sold him into slavery. And so, so you have those, those two examples and many other examples within the Bible. So uh, just in terms of developing the character of Christ, I, I just want to say that when we first become Christians, that we first make those new steps as followers of Jesus Christ and dedicate ourselves lifelong to follow him, uh, three significant changes occur. The first one is that sin is no longer our master because we choose to abandon our sin. And, and that's called repentance in the Bible, that sin is no longer our master. Yes, we sin and we are sinners, but sin does not rule our lives. Jesus rules our life. That's the first thing. The second thing is we become a new creation. And we get a new start in life. Our sins are forgiven. The old is gone. The new has come. And what a great, what a wonderful experience that is when you experience that freedom in Christ to have all the weight and the burden of sin that we carry to be forgiven and to, to be given a, a blank slate, a new start in life. What a tremendous thing that is. And if you've never done that, if, if you're still kind of considering the claims of Christ, and maybe you're doing an Alpha course or whatever, that is very compelling, that idea that you can make a whole new start. You know, you can start as a, as a new creation in Christ. This day, this moment, can be a new beginning where everything is washed clean and you have a new hope and a new start in life. That's the second thing. We become a new creation. The third thing is we begin a life of continual trans transformation to, to becoming... Uh, conform to the image of Christ. And, and that's the ongoing work of, of the Christian life. That's, that's, that's a process. That's why we all wear L-plates on our backs. That's why we're, we're all a work in progress because we are seeking and wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become more like Jesus in our, in our attitudes, our thoughts, in our heart. And the, Paul says in Corinthians, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We are being transformed. That process happens every day, every week, every month. We are being transformed. Hopefully you are more like Jesus today than you were last week. Though sometimes the graph does go like this. I, I can't say it's a smooth ascent to being Christ-like because it is, it is a rocky road sometimes. And we have good days, we have bad days, we have great days where we, we respond correctly to the Holy Spirit. And then other days 
where we, we blow it. We, we just, you know, it just seems that we're, we're drawn by that sin, sin nature. And Paul described that. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ is my Savior. Because he said, the things you, I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And that's the struggle of the Christian life that we all face. But, uh, but it, is a, it is a progressive line. Don't, don't be discouraged by the ups and downs because the progression is we are becoming transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Do you believe that? It's hard to believe sometimes when you're, when you're in the trough and you think, you can barely see out of the, out of the, the tunnel, but God is, God is with us and God is shaping us in those experiences. Uh, so what does it mean to be transformed into the likeness of Christ? Does it mean I grow a beard and my, if I could, I'd grow long hair and I wear a robe and sandals and have a kind of winsome look about me? Is that what it means to be conformed to Christ? What do you think it means to be conformed to Christ? Th throw a few ideas out here this morning. Humility. Taking on the humility of Christ. Anything else? What, what does it mean to be conformed to Christ into His likeness? Love? Compassion? Patience? Sorry? Very focused on the task ahead? See, all these things are not externals. They all have to do with the heart, don't they? That's why Jesus, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and, and, and all the truths that come out of that, he's always addressing the issues of the heart rather than the external things. Because the heart is the wellspring of life. That's why it says in Proverbs, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's important how we tend our heart and tend the garden of our heart in terms of our of our, our, of our character and our attitudes and being conformed and being transformed into the likeness of Christ. So it isn't about the external things. You know, I, I got saved during a time of the hippies, a, a, a revival called the Jesus Movement. And of course, all the hippies looked like Jesus. You know, all the hippies wore sandals. All the hippies had long hair. All the hippies wore these kind of loose, kind of flowing kind of clothes. It was like seeing Jesus everywhere. You'd come to church and there'd be hundreds of, of Jesus lookalikes. And but, but what was funny is some of them, I remember one guy in particular felt, you know, felt that it was important to speak King James English. So he would, he would always, uh, I, I spakest unto you, sister, howeth areth you. <laughs> you know, somehow he got this warped idea that, that Jesus spoke King James English, you know. Uh, not likely, but that was, that was kind of his understanding of what it meant to be Christ-like, as well as he looked just like Jesus, you know, just, uh, I don't know what's become of him, but, uh, you know, sometimes we, we veer off into the extremes, but, uh, but it is a, it's, it's about becoming like Jesus in our character, about being changed and transformed inwardly in our heart and mind. And that's why this, Paul says in Romans, says, do not... Uh, conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we want to be changed in our thinking, our minds renewed. Uh, and obviously, godly character is produced by the work of God's Spirit within us, producing fruit, as we read the other scripture, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit is really a perfect picture of Jesus. 
because he lived out his character. That is who Jesus was. Jesus is love. Jesus is peace. Jesus is goodness and patience and faithfulness and all those other qualities. He embodied all these qualities. And Jesus makes an amazing statement in John chapter 15 where he talks about himself being, being the vine and, and we are the branches. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. So there's this idea of being connected to Jesus. That's how our character is shaped, by being close to Jesus, observing him in the scriptures, and, 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 uh, and, and listening to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and being open to God, being teachable, you know, asking God, did God change me? Change that attitude. Lord, shape my character. Make me a more loving person. How many times have we faced that? You know, God, make me a loving person. I remember many years ago, I was working in a team with people, a Christian team, and there was one guy who I just detested for some reason. I didn't like the look of him. I didn't like the sound of him. I didn't like his manner. And yet he was a lovely Christian brother. But my attitude was, was so dark and ugly. And, you know, I, I despaired. I, I went to God in prayer. I said, God, change my heart. God, give me love for this man. And, you know, I, I just for a time, I just had to, to, to avoid him because my heart was so bad. And yet an amazing thing happened. One time I was with him because we had to be together. We were working the same team. And I found that my heart had been changed. A transformation that I actually liked the guy. And I actually felt warmth. I felt, I felt, I felt love towards, towards my brother in Christ because God had changed my heart. And, and uh, it was through that difficult relationship, and sometimes it often is, that, that our hearts are changed. So if you're in a difficult relationship, ask God to change your heart. Ask God to, to, to change your character, to, to shape your character through that so that you become more loving. More, maybe you need patience. Maybe you need kindness. Maybe you need gentleness. But we can ask God to produce those fruits within us if we, if we remain in Christ, if we remain close to Him. These qual are qualities we should seek to practice and look for in all our relationships. But there are also qualities, as I mentioned before, that we would look for in, in leaders as well, whether it be leaders in our jobs or leaders within church or leaders in the nation, we would want to see those qualities of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't we? Isn't that what really the, the kind of character we want? We want people who have, who have, a, who have generous hearts, who are, who are kind people, who aren't angry and, and mean-spirited people. So uh, just to say uh, also that, that we... The place, the crucible where our character is formed is, is often uh, in trials. So we read a scripture in James that says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and my sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So imagine this perspective as a Christian, as, as a follower of Jesus who's being conformed to the image of Christ, who's, who's being transformed into his likeness, considering it joy when you face trials. That's a different perspective. Instead of running from trials, then we, we embrace them. We, we, we want to get everything out of it that we can. We, we want to hear God in the midst of that trial, whether it be a relationship difficulty or whether it be just a circumstance of life, it might be a health issue, 
It might be a job situation. It might be a crisis of faith. Whatever it is, try to find God in the midst of that and say, God, what are you speaking? How are you wanting to shape me through this experience? It says in Romans, Paul says this, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. So godly character is not built in a classroom or in a church service. That isn't where it happens. It is built in the circumstances of our lives. When we understand that God uses circumstances to grow and develop our character, we're able to respond correctly when God places us in character-building circumstances. And I, I must say that I've been in a deeply character-building circumstance uh, with a neighbor over the issue of a boundary line to put a fence. Something so petty, so small, and yet it's, it's dragged out of me the worst within me. You know, the ugliness of my own heart. As I've wrestled with this for two months, this has lingered on and we've been back and forth and, and I've had to try to be patient. I've had to, though I've raised my voice, I've had to not say bad things or use words that I'd regret. And it's been a real crucible for me in terms of developing patience and, and, and being loving. The most basic thing, love your neighbor as yourself. That isn't somebody, that's your neighbor, your immediate neighbor, to, to be a loving, kind person. And I haven't always been successful in that journey over these past few months. You know, I've come back and think, oh, why did I, why did I get angry? Why did I raise my voice? But, you know, yesterday, he gave me a hug <laughs> because we resolved the issue finally after two months. This, this, because, you know, and it's just because each of us is petty. Each of us is small-minded. We're quibbling over inches, you know, inches. And yet, it, it's probably, Sandy says, probably because you're both so similar that you've been clashing over this, this issue. But God has used that as a crucible in my own life to, 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 to shape me, to make me more Christ-like. And uh, I guess the fruit of it is he gave me a hug yesterday. And he didn't put a, a knife in my back as he did it. <laughs> he just gave me a hug. I thought, well, how many, you know, men don't hug men, especially neighbors. You don't hug your neighbor, do you? But I thought, well, that's resolution. That's, that's, that's success, that God is doing something through this hard time. This is why God allows all kinds of character-building circumstances in our lives. He allows conflict, disappointment, difficulty, delays, temptation, crises of faith, dark nights of the soul, all of that God allows in our lives because he, he, he builds character into, a lot, into our lives by allowing us to experience situations where we are tempted to do the exact opposite. He puts us in those situations where, where he wants us to be loving, but we want to be spiteful. You know, we, we, he puts us in situations where he wants us to be forgiving, but everything within us is full of unforgiveness. So God... Isn't God amazing? He puts us in these situations to, to change us and to, to, to bring out the exact opposite uh, of what we feel like doing. Character development always involves a choice. When we make the right choice, our character grows more like Christ when we make the right choices. And we don't always make the right choices, but we're learning to, aren't we? We're learning to make the right choices. Uh, whenever we choose to respond to a situation in God's way instead of following our natural inclination, we develop character. The situation becomes a stepping stone for us rather than a stumbling block. 
And so we must look for those stepping stones within the, the difficulties of our lives, whether it be relationships or, or, or situations. Look for the stepping stones. Say, God, make me a better person out of this rather than a bitter person out of this. You know, change me. Uh, so just to, to conclude, just a few bullet points here of how do we develop the character of Christ. Well, I say, firstly, we align ourselves to, to God and his ways. And that's, that's fundamental, that we seek first Jesus and his kingdom. There's a, a, a very uh, famous missionary statesman, a guy named Charles Stanley, who was a missionary well-regarded for 50 years in, in, uh, in India. He was actually a close personal friend of Mahatma Gandhi and was an advisor and a, con a confidant of his, and yet a lovely Christian man. He said, the time you spend alone with God will transform your character and increase your devotion. Then your integrity and your godly behavior in an unbelieving world will make others long to know the Lord. See, that's, that's where it happens. It happens as we align ourselves, as we draw near to God and spend time with God. And that transforms our character. The second thing is to walk humbly with God. It says in Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And those are all character traits. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Um, and that's really about the dying to ourselves. It's about the crucified life. It's about preferring other people. It's about saying, not my will, but your will be done. It's about surrendering to God, humbling ourselves to God, saying, oh God, I cannot do this myself. I need your enabling. I need your help. I need your empowering. I need your grace in my life. And that's what that's about. And aligned with that is this idea of committing ourselves to a lifestyle of repentance. You know, repentance isn't just something I did on the 23rd of December, 1973, when I gave my life to Christ. But it's, it's, it's an everyday thing. It's, it's, it's like the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's keeping short accounts with God. It's that, it's that lifestyle of repentance. Not that we grovel around in sackcloth and ashes, but it's just about keeping our hearts tender to God and open to the Holy Spirit and the conviction that God wants to bring into our lives. And he says, uh-uh, you shouldn't have spoken that way. Or, you know, your attitude's not right. Or, you know, I asked you to do this and you didn't do it. You, didn't, you weren't obedient. So those kinds of things of, Lord, you know, shape me. Lord, I, I repent. I want to change. I want to surrender. And then the last two things are just to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, is, is scripture says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually filled with the Spirit of God. And, and let that be part of your prayer. Say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me afresh. You know, the, if you read the book of Acts, it says that, that in some situations they were baptized, but they'd never heard about the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles and others would lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, churches have developed theologies around that. Some people to say, well, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or that's the second blessing, or whatever. But whatever language you use, the reality was that, that actually people received the Holy Spirit uh, in, in, a, in a particular way when the apostles and others laid their hands upon them. So we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing, as I've mentioned before, is embrace the circumstances of our lives 
as the crucible of the growth of our character. You know, don't flee from the difficult situations, but, but you know, cling to them, extract from them the lessons and, and, and the, 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 the character that God wants you to learn from those things. Billy Graham said this. He said, the greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children and grandchildren is not money or other material things accumulated in one's life, but rather a legacy of character and faith. That's the greatest thing. That's, that's our greatest legacy that we pass on to our children and grandchildren. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, just for uh, that you want to shape our character, Lord, so that we would become the people you want us to be, so that we'd be more Christ-like in our relationships and our dealings with people and our life in this world, being in the world, though our citizenship is to another world as well. Father, help us, shape us. And Father, I wonder if we could just stand together. I'm going to pray a general prayer about receiving the Holy Spirit, okay? And as I always say, and I put a disclaimer to this, if you feel comfortable doing this, just open your hands as, as an act of surrender to God, as a way of, of, of being, you know, we're kind of opening our stance to God. But if you don't feel comfortable, there's no compulsion because I'm talking about the issues of the heart here. But sometimes, I know I find it helpful sometimes just to open my hands with my palms up to God as, as surrender. Father, I want to pray right now that you would fill each one of us afresh with your Holy Spirit. The scripture is very clear. It says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that Spirit uh, empowers us to live the life. It enables us to be the people that we want to be. And, and, and also, Lord, it's the great missionary spirit as well. It's why we go and share our faith with other people. Because, because of that, that, uh, that compelling of your Spirit to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. So, Father, fill us afresh. I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon us in a, in a profound way. It might be in a quiet way. It might be gentle. It might be uh, deeply significant to us, Lord. But fill us afresh, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.